All right, we're continuing our study together in chapter 30 of our Confession of Faith, <clears throat> in which we're dealing with the subject of the Lord's Supper. And um, these last um, several chapters have talked about um, our, our corporate uh, interactions with other people. We talked about the civil magistrate. We talked about marriage. Uh, and now we're talking about the church. We've talked about the church, then we talked about baptism, and now we're talking about the Lord's Supper. So these last several chapters have kind of dealt with our corporate responsibilities and interactions with each other um, as we dwell together in civil society and in, uh, in uh, marriage and also in church society. Now, uh, what we've been doing is, is talking about the names uh, of the... Um, ceremony known as the Lord's Supper. And um, we uh, have considered together the ecclesiastical names that were uh, applied to the Lord's Supper. There was the term ordinance, which dealt with the fact that the Lord's Supper is not something we've invented. It's something that's been ordered by God. It is one of his laws that he has set out. We didn't institute it. We can't change it. Uh, all we can do is just obey what God has said in relationship to this um, uh, ceremony. And then we looked at the term Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. And we saw that the Lord's Supper was a time for thankfulness or a thanksgiving. And we see that the Lord Jesus, when he celebrated the Lord's Supper, he gave thanks for the bread and the wine. And uh, the word Eucharist is a, is a transliteration of the Greek word Eucharistao, which means I give thanks. Um, and then we saw that there was the term sacrament that was used. And that simply refers to the fact that the Lord's Supper is a meal that is set apart or sacred from all other meals. And so we see that uh, this is not something that we eat for the meeting of our nutritional needs. It has a separate meaning from all other meals. And that's why it's called a sacrament or something that is sacred or set apart as sacred. And then, fourthly, we looked at the term mass, which comes from the Latin word missa, which means to dismiss. And since the Lord's Supper is only for believers, then all non-believers are to be dismissed from participation in the Lord's Supper. And they literally used to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And, and all the people who were not <clears throat> baptized uh, professing believers at, literally left the building and weren't in there. Um, and so they were, they were dismissed out of the service. And of course, we don't do that today, but we do uh, have um, a, a dismissal time when I give the exhortation regarding the Lord's Supper and I say, you know, if you meet these criteria, the Lord's Supper is for you. And if you don't meet these criteria, then the Lord's Supper is not for you. Okay. So we have that as well. So those were the four ecclesiastical terms that are used to describe the Lord's Supper. And you know what? They're all good terms. They're all valid terms. And of course, we are loath to use um, these terms, except for the term ordinance, we use that quite a bit. But when we think about Eucharist and we think about sacrament, we think about mass, we think about Roman Catholicism and all their perversions of the Lord's Supper, because those are the terms they use. I was raised a Catholic and uh, I never heard the term Lord's Supper ever used to describe their 
communion service. Um, it was always um, the celebration of the Mass or the celebration of the sacrament or the celebration of the Eucharist. I was very familiar with those terms. Didn't really know what they meant, but those are the terms they use um, in uh, the Anglican Church, in the Episcopal Church, and in the Roman Catholic Church. And so because of the doctrinal aberrations that are associated with those, um, we tend to shy away from them. But they are good terms, it's just that the bad guys have stolen them, and so we tend not to use them because they tend to do that. All right. Well, that um, leads us then to the biblical terms, and there are also four of those. And we want to look at each of those and the passages in which they occur in order to further our understanding of this ceremony and the names that are attached to it. Because as we said, the names are descriptive and the names help us understand what it is that we're doing. So the first biblical term that we want to give our attention to this morning is the term the Lord's Supper. And of course, that's the term that opens this first paragraph in our confession when it says the Supper of the Lord Jesus or the Lord's Supper, okay, which is used. And let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20. 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll see where this term is uh, actually used in the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20, Paul says, when he starts to address the issue of uh, the communion service with um, the people at the church of Corinth, he says, 1 Corinthians 11, 20, when ye come uh, together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, or it could be translated, it is impossible to eat the Lord's Supper. Roy, you have the New King James there. What does it say in the New King James? Uh, Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Okay. Right. Okay, so it's very similar to the Old King James. But the idea here is, is that you're not eating the Lord's Supper. You think you are, but you're really not because you're perverting it so badly that it can't be called the Lord's Supper. All right? Uh, because it was impossible to celebrate the selfless sacrifice of Christ in the midst of all the selfishness that they were exercising as they had their, their common meal together. Okay? So, anyway, it's called the Lord's Supper. Okay? And there's four reasons uh, or, or four meanings, if you will, that are conveyed by that term, the Lord's Supper. And I want to just go through each of them. Okay? First of all, it's called the Lord's Supper because it is the supper that belongs to the Lord. It's His. Okay? And so, it's the meal that belongs to the Lord. It's His in that He owns it, He instituted it, and He regulates it. It belongs to Him. So, there's the idea of ownership. All right? Then the second idea that's wrapped up in the phrase, the Lord's Supper, is that it is a meal that is for the Lord. It's the Lord's Supper. Okay? And when we say that it's the meal that is for the Lord, what we mean by that is that it is for His remembrance. It is for His glory. It is for the declaration of His work. It is a meal that is to have a distinctly um, vertical focus and a distinct Christ-centeredness about it. 
In other words, we're not doing it for us. We're doing it for Him. And so He is the ruler of the feast as well as the guest of honor at the feast. It's the Lord's Supper because it's for the Lord. It's for Him. So that's the second idea that's wrapped up in that phrase, the Lord's Supper. So it's the supper that belongs to Him. It's the supper that's for Him. Thirdly, when we say it's the Lord's Supper, we mean it's a meal that is provided by the Lord. It's a meal that is provided by the Lord. That is, it's a place where He shares the rich abundance of His grace with all who come to His table. It is not, the Lord's Supper is not a place where one group of people provide for another group. Now, if, if, if you invite me over to your house for dinner, okay, you are providing me with food. But when we're at the Lord's house for His dinner, He is providing all of us with food. I'm not providing for you at the Lord's Supper, and you're not providing for me at the Lord's Supper. He is providing for all of us, okay? So it's the Lord's Supper in the sense that it is a meal that is provided by the Lord. And then fourthly, we call it the Lord's Supper, not only because it's the meal that belongs to the Lord, it's a meal that is for the Lord, for His remembrance and His glory. It's a meal that is provided by the Lord, but fourthly, it is a meal that is distinct from all other meals. It is the Lord's Supper. It's not some other kind or type of supper. Now, <clears throat> getting back to our passage, um, this agape or this love feast that they engaged in at Corinth was a communal meal. That is, it's much like the so-called potlucks that we have. But the difference between their communal meal that they were having at their church service and the communal meals we have after our church service is that they didn't share their food. Now, when you bring food here, um, you, know, you fix it in the kitchen, you set it on the table, and everybody gets to partake, right? So we all share our food among ourselves. Well, they didn't do that. Everybody brought their own dish, and they set it in front of themselves, and they ate out of their own dish, and they didn't share with anybody else, and nobody shared with them, okay? And so what this did is it created a display of selfishness and envy among him because here's a guy over here eating T-bone steak and here's another guy over here and all he's got is watercress that he picked alongside the road because he didn't have any money for food. And um, they're sitting there and, and, you know, the wealthy are eating lavish and, and uh, even to the point of gluttony and the poor are sitting over there with their stomachs still rumbling after they've eaten you know, whatever small uh, items they could have, have gleaned, okay? So, and then on top of that is that this communal meal that they were having was then tried to uh, be confused with and morphed in with the Lord's Supper. And it was just a confused mess. And so that's why he said, when you come together, whatever you're doing, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. And so <clears throat> there was no distinction in the minds of the Corinthians between the ordinary meal for the nourishment of the body and the ceremonial meal for the remembrance of Jesus Christ. And that was the reason why Paul got on their case so heavily and spent so much time straightening them out and told them, look, separate. If you're going to eat, he says, eat at home. Don't, don't bring your food to the church. 
He said, so that when you do eat at church, it's clearly the Lord's Supper. It's not mixed in with this um, self-centered nutritional meal that they were calling the Lord's Supper. So uh, what Paul was saying is that you need to make a distinction between eating for nutrition and celebrating the Lord's Supper because what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. And that's what he's saying in verse 20. When you come to get, therefore together into one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Okay. All right, any questions about that term or those four meanings? All right, well, the uh, next um, biblical term that's used is the term communion. And if you turn back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, he uses that term uh, in that passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 16 and 17. Now, here he's talking about um, eating meat offered to idols and stuff like that, okay? And uh, without spending much time going into that, he, he tells them in verse 14, he says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men judge you what I say. And now in verses 16 and 17, he addresses the issue of the Lord's Supper. He says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And then he goes on and he applies all of that to the issue of eating meat offered to idols and stuff, okay? But notice what he calls the Lord's Supper. He calls it a communion service or an act of communion. And that's why our Confession of Faith says, um, that one of the things about this meal, it is a bond and pledge of our communion with him and with each other. That's the last phrase in paragraph one. Okay. So the word here for communion is the Greek word koinonia. And it's the word that simply means fellowship or sharing together. And the word koinonia or communion em emphasizes the fact that the Lord's Supper is a declaration of the unity and the fellowship that exists between the believers and Christ and between the believers and each other. Okay? So there's, there, there's two uh, focuses of our communion or fellowship. One's vertical with Christ and the other's horizontal with each other. Now, turn in your Bible, please, to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And we'll look together at verse 3. Uh, now you guys all are experts in 1 John, right? Because I've just been preaching through it recently. <laughs> so 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. Notice how it contains both of these ideas of communion, both vertical and horizontal. It says in verse 3, John says, 1 John 1, 3, That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that you also may have communion, koinonia, fellowship, that's the word, same word, that you may have fellowship with us. 
Now notice the directions of the fellowship. And truly our fellowship, same word koinonia, or the word that's translated communion there, for truly our communion is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So, he wants them to have fellowship with us. That is, John says, we're writing these things so you Christians can have fellowship with us Christians and so that our fellowship can also be with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John is not talking about the communion service in this text. The reason why I had us look at this text is so that we could uh, see how the word koinonia or communion is used here for fellowship and it just speaks of the reciprocal interaction and resultant closeness and sharing that we experience when we interact with each other and when we interact with the Lord. Okay, So it's the same Greek word, exact same word that's used for communion over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So if we share something in common with another person, then we are said to have fellowship with that person in the area of that commonality. Okay, So what do we share in common? Well, we share the Lord Jesus Christ in common. We share the Holy Spirit in common. We share um, uh, a mutual faith in common, a mutual destiny in common. There's an awful lot that we share in common. And that which we have in common is that which forms the basis of our communion or our fellowship. And so what we have in common with Christ is that we share our life uh, with him and from him and among ourselves. And what we have in common is that we all have the life of Christ in us. And it is that life of Christ that we're celebrating and recognizing at the Lord's Supper. So the word communion, therefore, conveys the idea of togetherness. It conveys the idea of fellowship, our togetherness and unity with Christ, our togetherness and unity with each other. And this is why we always have communion corporately. You don't go off and have communion in a closet by yourself because it would be a denial of what the communion is declaring, and that is your union and fellowship with your fellow believers. And so... Uh, in particular, communion is only to be exercised in the gathered body of believers uh, because that's a major component of its meaning. Is that when, when, when we all eat one bread and we all drink one cup, we're saying we're all one together with each other. Okay? All right. So, <clears throat> turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And notice this idea of communion or, or togetherness. Notice chapter 11, verse 17. Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together. There's the word, come together. Not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18, first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear there be divisions among you, and I partly uh, believe it. And then in verse 20, when you come together, therefore, in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Notice verse 33. It says, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Verse 34. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. So there's this huge emphasis about coming together 
uh, as a body to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's the only context in which it's to be celebrated. When you look in the New Testament and you see um, all the situations in which people are celebrating the Lord's Supper, it's always in the church when it's gathered together for its stated meetings. Okay, So that's why we do communion here, and that's why we don't do it anywhere else. All right, any questions about that word? All right, the fourth, pardon me, the third word that is used for um, this uh, ordinance is not only uh, the Lord's Supper and not only communion, but another term that's used is the Lord's table. The Lord's table. And um, this term is used in 1 Corinthians 10.21. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Now, the word for table is an interesting word. It's the word trapezia, from which we get our uh, English word trapezoid. And those of you who know geometry know that a trapezoid is a four-sided figure. Okay, and what are tables? They generally have four sides, right? And so that's why the word, you know, uh, table is, is, is the translation of the word trapezoid, and that's why we get it. Or in this case, something with four legs, whatever it may be. So what he's talking about here when he's talking about the Lord's table is he's talking about a literal meal table like your dining room table. And uh, so... Um, the, the idea here, okay, of the Lord's table is that when you guys eat dinner, you all sit around the table, right? You're all around the table together and you're eating the meal together. And common meals where people sat down around a table and they ate together, uh, those common meals were of great significance in ancient times. When you spread a meal for someone on your table and he accepted your hospitality and he sat at your table and he ate your food with you, that was a highly significant act. Now, we don't attach that kind of significance now to it nowadays, unfortunately. I think we should. But when you ate someone's food, you weren't just eating his food. You were making a commitment to that person. And the commitment you were making to that person and that he was making to you was that you were friends with this person and that you were in covenant with this person so that you would never do him any harm and he would never do you any harm. And you remember how David in the book of Psalms, and I don't recall what Psalm it is at the moment, but he says, mine own familiar friend that did eat with me has lifted up his heel against me. And the fact that he had eaten with him made his lifting up his heel against him a much more evil act than if he was just some general enemy out there. So the idea is that when you accept someone's hospitality and you eat at their table, you are, by doing that, making a commitment to that person that you will never do them harm. And they will never do you harm. And that's why whenever they had... Covenants in the Old Testament, there was always, um, you know, people would sit down and they would have a meal together and uh, then they would enter into these covenants. 
And so, <clears throat> to sit at one's table and receive his hospitality was to commit yourself to never do any harm to that person. You would not be a party to any injury or disloyalty to him. And if you weren't willing to make that commitment, you didn't eat at his table. So to take a meal, therefore, was to enter into a pledge with the one that you received it from. Now, just to give you one brief illustration, let's turn to Genesis chapter 26. <clears throat> and we'll look at verses 26 to 31. Genesis chapter 26, verses 26 to 31. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Abimelech, had, his herdsmen had been having some conflicts with uh, Isaac's. Isaac's herdsmen would dig a well, and Abimelech's herdsmen would come and steal the well and, and boot him out. Okay, so that's the background. Verse 26, Then Abimelech went to him, that is to Isaac, from Gerar, and Ahizavath, Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said to them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said, Let there now be an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord. And he, that is Isaac, made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. And they rose up betimes in the morning and swore one to another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And then it goes on and talks about uh, the well that they had dug. Okay, So there's an example of what we're talking about, where they would come together, they would make a covenant, and they would seal that covenant by eating a meal together. And that was the sign that, um, we're, we're going to be friends here and we're not going to do you hurt and you're not going to do us hurt. And um, we see the same thing taking place in Obadiah chapter 7. We see the same thing taking place in Psalm 41 and verse 9. So, <clears throat> um, in fact, that, that's the verse uh, that, I, that I alluded to earlier, Psalm 41 and verse 9 that I quoted to you. Yes, here it is. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted. And why did he trust him? Which did eat of my bread. That's why he trusted him. He has lifted up his heel against me. Let's go ahead and look at that, that passage in Obadiah chapter 7. I should say Obadiah verse 7, because huh, it's only one chapter. It says in Obadiah chapter 1 and verse 7, <clears throat> All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee there is none understanding in him. So, once again, we see that when you eat bread at someone's table, you're not supposed to wound them. Okay? 
just the, the illustration of, of, of the point once again. So when, when, when David thought about who his enemies were, it was very conceivable to him that the Philistines might attack him. But for someone from his own table to attack him, that was traitorous, and that's what caused the bitterness. And of course, um, <clears throat> David was, was attacked by many. Uh, Absalom uh, was one of his own sons who ate at his table that turned on him and rebelled against him and, uh, uh, and attacked him. In John 13 and verse 18, John 13, 18, <clears throat> Jesus used this passage in Psalm 41.9 to refer to Judas Iscariot. Okay? In John 13.18 it says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And then he goes on and he identifies Judas by the sop and he sends him out. And who didn't? eat the Lord's Supper. It was Judas. He was gone. He was not. Because see, that supper was, was the seal of the new covenant. It was the seal of the covenant. And there was a meal ratifying the covenant. Right? Okay? Just like with Isaac. And so this idea of people sitting down and having a meal together and entering into a covenant was really a big deal. And it was understood that if you ate at someone's table, you were not their enemy, you were at peace with them, you weren't going to do them harm. So don't go eat at somebody's house if you're not willing to relate to them on those terms. And by eating at someone's house, that's what you're saying is, I'm at peace with you and I'm not going to do you any harm. Okay. All right, well, our time is gone. Um, but uh, we're not going to get to the fourth one. But let me just make a couple of comments. Um, getting back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you want to turn back there for a second? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is the reason why God warned his people against partaking in heathen feasts. This is why he said to them in chapter 10 and verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do you see it now? Because see, if you go eat at the devil's table, you're saying you're at peace with the devil and you're not going to do the devil any harm. And then you run over here and you eat at the Lord's table and you're saying you're at peace with the Lord and you're not going to do the Lord any harm. But the devil and the Lord are, are enemies, right? So you've got to pick sides. And either eat at the devil's table or eat at the Lord's table, but don't eat at both. That's the whole idea here. So anyway, to eat at their table was to join yourself together with them. And the table at which you eat is the loyalty to which you are pledged. And that's why you cannot eat the table of the devil and the table of God at the same time. So when you sit here on Sunday at the Lord's table, what you are doing is you are pledging yourself to him, and you are swearing your loyalty to him, your faithfulness to him, that you will not do contrary to his cause or his name. 
when you go out from his table. That's what you're saying. So, to recognize uh, the significance of eating at a table is to add a profound layer of meaning to what we do when we celebrate the Lord's table. Okay. Next week, we'll talk about our fourth term, the breaking of bread. That's a biblical term. We'll talk about what that means and, and why we do it. Um, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful ordinance that you have given to us that, in fact, we will be celebrating together next week. And Lord, I pray that as we study this sole subject that our participation in the Lord's Supper might become richer and deeper and fuller and more blessed. Give us, Father, a, a proper and profound understanding of this symbolic act so that all of the blessings that it contains and the richness that it represents might be ours and might be a means of feeding our souls and deepening our communion with Christ and with each other. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name.